Matthew chapter 10, and tonight we'll read verses 24 through 33. We'll look at the whole chapter, or the, the end, rest of the chapter, but I'll read verses 24 through 33. So let us now hear God's word. Matthew 10, beginning at verse 24. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear proclaimed from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Amen. Let's ask for God's help once again. Father in heaven, we are again so thankful for your word. We love your word. It, it refreshes. It points to Christ. It's our access to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. And these words comfort us, they challenge us, they give direction, they meet our needs, and they show us how we can serve you in this world. So Lord, teach us tonight how we can know you, how we can worship you, how we can be holy, and how we can live out our calling wherever we may find ourselves during the next six days. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we have said many times, Matthew chapter 10 is all about authority. Jesus' authority. An authority that he is committing to his people as they go out on mission for his sake. He preached with authority in the Sermon on the Mount. He demonstrated his authority in chapters 8 and 9, doing all those marvelous deeds among the people. And now in chapter 10, as he has ordained, appointed these 12 apostles, he says, Now I send my authority with you. Go out in my name and preach the good news that God's reign has come. What John the Baptist anticipated, what so many in Israel hungered for, the reign of God, the rescue of God, the salvation of God, the kingdom of God, it's here. And here's how you can submit to God's reign. Here's how you can be a part of his kingdom people, his renewed people, this, this new but renewed Israel in the last days. And not only is it just information, content that people need to know, Jesus lets them know, my authority actually goes with you. You'll take my words, you'll do my miracles, and I will be the one going with you. 
And when you say, all right, well, how long? Or, well, what's that look like in our lives? Jesus didn't send me out to do any miracles. He says, look, on the one hand, don't go anywhere other than the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't go into those Gentile regions. Don't go down into Samaria. Right now, right here, you, you focus on Israel. But you won't finish going through those Israelite cities before the Son of Man comes. And as I argued last week in our message, the Son of Man comes. It doesn't refer to Him appearing on earth for His second coming. It's the Son of Man comes into the heavenly courtroom where God gives Him authority over the nations. And when will God do that? After the Son of Man has suffered and been vindicated. So go out into these Israelite towns. My authority is going with you, but eventually you're going to go into all the world and my authority will go with you even to the end of the age. And it is an authority that goes with us. It's an authority that's here in this church tonight. The ongoing authority of the risen, vindicated Lord Jesus now going with us here in this room and going with this church as we go out to do his mission. And of course, that authority would bring a lot of comfort because as Jesus warns them, there will be times of opposition. Some of the religious groups in Israel won't like what you're saying. They'll view that as heresy, not a help to the kingdom of God, but a hindrance to God's reign. They'll view you as the enemy. As you go into the world, into nations that share other religions and commitments, there will be opposition from the Romans and at times from other nations and sadly in some ages from the church itself. But you go with my authority. And while there may be the very real uh, danger of persecution, Jesus says, here's how you'll respond to that. Here's how you'll continue to be my people. Here's how you'll function. And so as we look at the verses tonight, that's the shift we're seeing in the final uh, verses tonight. Jesus has emphasized mission. But now in the verses we look at as the chapter concludes, he emphasizes how we respond to opposition or how we can be equipped to do the mission even if there is trouble. And here's how our Lord will do this. He's a master of, of balance. So there, there will be warning. You know, don't stray from the mission or this will happen. But there will be encouragement. Your heavenly Father knows the very hairs on your head. And that warning and encouragement, it will meet, it'll, it'll witness, or it'll encourage, help the disciples when they're feeling the pressure. Do, do we remain faithful to our Lord? Or do we succumb to this human opposition? Well, Jesus will give them the warning and the encouragement they need to keep his promises, his truth on their horizon. So they don't lose their grip on eternal reality. So they don't, you know, going through a dark cave, lose sight of what lies ahead. As we were exhorted this morning, our, our ultimate hope, Jesus will keep their eyes on hope through his warning and through his encouragement. So let's look at how the Savior does that tonight. Really two sections. First, the verses I've already read, verses 24 to 33. Here, Jesus equips his disciples. And after this section, the rest of the verses that close out of the chapter give us Jesus assuring his disciples of what will happen, how the future will go. So let's look first. How does Jesus equip his students? 
Well, he begins with these words in verses 24 and 25 about the student not being above the teacher nor a servant above his master. And on the one hand, this this analogy, the student-teacher imagery, that is exactly what Jesus is sending them out to do. He's the teacher, they're the students, now go out and preach to others what they have learned from Jesus. But on the other hand, he also uses this master-slave analogy. And while that is frequent language in Paul's epistles, it doesn't occur very often in the Gospels. In fact, it's unique here in Matthew's Gospel, the imagery of the master and the servant. But no doubt it reflects Matthew's sense of Jesus' unique authority. That's just not language you throw around, hey, I'm the master, you're the servant. But it must bear witness to the fact that Jesus knows who he is. He knows how the disciples relate to him. And so he, as the Lord of their life, will send them out. And they should go out realizing, hey, we may share our master's loft. The kind of treatment that came to him may also come to them. Why? Because there's nothing they can do to, to get out of the trouble he got in. If it, if it got him down that road, well, it may come to them too. So it's one of those warnings. But again, dual emphasis, as I said. There may be an encouragement here. It's just faint. But maybe when Jesus says the student will be like the teacher, maybe that's just a little pointer towards what Paul develops in his letters. That we become like Christ. That we are conformed to his image. So on the one hand, Jesus is saying, it went bad for me, might go bad for you. But on the other hand, Jesus is saying, hey, if that's the case, then you're becoming more like me. So there's comfort there that we are becoming like our Lord. In fact, he says, look, if they call me Beelzebul, well, how much more will they call you followers of Beelzebul. And that title there, it's a popular name for Satan. It's just it's one of the names people used to refer to Satan in this time period. It, its origin is not known. There, there's a similar name that occurs in 2 Kings, Beelzebub, referring to one of the uh, Philistine deities. Whether it comes from that somehow uh, or not is not known. The origin isn't known, but the main idea is clear. They think I'm evil? Well, then they're probably going to think you're evil. I think I'm a threat. Probably going to do the same to you. So then what do we do if people think of us that way? If, if because of following Jesus, people think ill of you, what should you do? Well, he says there in verse 26, do not be afraid. And in verse 7, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. And if you come to these verses and you're wondering, all right, what's this, what's this vague language here of nothing concealed that won't be uh, disclosed? What is Jesus talking about there? Verse 27 helps us understand verse 26. And in verse 27, Jesus says, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. In other words, I'm teaching you things as a close-knit body of disciples. What I teach you, you should proclaim openly. It may be hidden, so to speak, when it's just us, but it needs to be revealed to the world. And Jesus tells them that because while he's telling them not to be afraid, what is the first thing to go if you are under threat or if you are afraid? It would be public proclamation. 
So don't be afraid. You're going to be tempted to be afraid. You're going to be tempted to mute the message because it's getting you in trouble. But don't fear. Reveal these things openly that I have taught you in secret. You, you have a duty not to fear and you have a duty to proclaim. Everything I teach you, Jesus says, is with this goal in mind that it would be openly proclaimed. Of course, verse 28 then raises the possibility of martyrdom. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body. That is a real possibility. It came to most of the original disciples. It has come to people who took the gospel into lands, sometimes as pioneers, that they died for their testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not everyone faces that, as we considered last week, but we should at least reckon with Jesus's words. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body. And again, notice the dual thrust. He gives encouragement. He says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. That's good news. Your life, who you really are, what really matters, that goes beyond the body. That goes beyond this life. Your bodily existence is not all there is. And who you really are in the Lord goes beyond those things. So there's encouragement there, but there's also warning. God says, look, don't be afraid of those who can only kill the body. They can't control your soul, but I can. I control both body and soul. And so don't fear their attacks. Instead, fear judgment that should you not be loyal to me, then your lot would fall with those who do not know me, the punishment of God in hell. And the word that he uses here, hell, it's the, often talk about this, this word Gehenna. It, it derives from the valley of Hinnom. It's an area outside Jerusalem. One of those abominable places that in the Old Testament was the site of human sacrifice. Where people were offered to Molech. And one of those just wicked practices that brought on the Babylonian Exile. It was a place where Israel committed idolatry, but when the Babylonians came, a place where they were punished, where there was judgment on their wickedness. You've probably heard this. It's according to later tradition that that valley became a place where rubbish was dumped. So it was the town landfill, so to speak, or the garbage pit, and they burned trash there. Hence the imagery of hellfire that Jesus sometimes appeals to when talking about the place of punishment. If that tradition is true, then it would provide a very vivid image for this idea of eternal fire or ongoing punishment that comes to those who don't know God. It's a place of judgment, a place of exclusion, a place of destruction, a place of torment. And when Jesus tells us these words, this isn't you know, psychological terror that's just aimed to control. This is a healthy fear of God. If he made us, and if he made us more than bodies, then he has ultimate control over those things. And so we shouldn't fear those who can only touch us here. We should fear the one in whom our eternity ultimately rests. And I say it's not, you know, manipulation, psychological terror, because it's coupled with these words in verse 29, where Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's 
care. So on the one hand, there's a healthy fear of God. He controls everything. And on the other hand, Jesus is telling us that we can trust our God. He, He takes care of you better than the care he gives for birds. Don't fear man, fear God. And along with your fear of God, trust in God. Jesus is basically picking up where he stopped in Matthew 6, where he said, look at the birds of the air, look at the flowers of the field. God knows the lifespan of those birds. Well, then God knows your lifespan. And God knows that nothing can happen to the children of a loving Heavenly Father that would fall outside of his providential care. Nothing can happen to you by surprise to God. Nothing can happen to you that then frustrates God. He is involved in everything. In fact, the NIV here supplies the word care. Uh, The sparrows won't fall outside your father's care. The original language simply reads outside of your father. And we're to supply, you know, in English. Okay, is that care? Is that knowledge? Nothing outside of your father happens to you. God's total providential care over your life. And if we didn't believe him there, verse 30 drives it home. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to count the hairs on your head. I don't think any you, you've got far too much to do uh, to try to do that. The point is it's impossible. When we think, wow, like how many are there up there? From a human vantage point, it's impossible. So that's kind of a proverbial Saying the impossibility of counting the hairs on your head. That's why Jesus uses the image to say what is impossible with men is possible with God. And so that emphasizes the idea of his care. God can know what humans can. God can do what humans can. And God can know what you don't know and therefore act accordingly. It it makes me think of Romans 8. Where we read, you know, sometimes we don't know how to pray. We just don't know what words to use. We're so grieved. We're so distraught. We're so confused. And it says, but God knows. He knows the deep groanings. And so the Spirit comes to intercede. Because the Spirit can make sense of your groanings. And the Spirit knows the will of God. So so He can translate accordingly what you're trying to say into what needs to be said. And if some had said, I can't remember, it was Luther or, or, or someone else, you know, the Holy Spirit prays the way we would if we knew everything God did. And so when he tells us here that the hairs of your head are all numbered, it's, it's his way of saying, you don't know everything that's going to happen. You, you can't plan perfectly for it, but I know, and so I'll plan perfectly. So you trust me, and you follow me. In fact, verse 31, don't be Afraid. Third time in this passage, Jesus has said it. It echoes, as we've already said, Matthew 6. And so this whole passage, like a river, funnels into verses 32 and 33. If you acknowledge me before others, I acknowledge you before my Father. But if you disown me, I will disown you. And now we understand a little better why he said what he did in verse 28. The one who might destroy body and soul and hell. If through fear you fall away from me, then you're not connected to me. And I will not acknowledge you on the last day. But if you are connected to me and maintain loyalty 
to me, then I will acknowledge you there. I would even argue theologically, if you are connected to him, you will maintain loyalty to him. And so he will acknowledge you on the last day. It's just a way of asking us, what are your ultimate priorities? Carving out everything perfectly now, getting everything that you want now, even if it means losing something eternally, or is it gaining eternity, even if that means sacrifice now? What, what are your ultimate priorities? And, and friends, I won't lie, sometimes I read the Bible and I read these words and I think, okay, God's sovereign, he could do anything. Like, why not just design it in a way where we could have a really good life and then eternal life? Hey, what's so wrong with that? Well, on the one hand, we trust the wisdom of God. He knows better than we do. And in the wisdom of God and the providence of God, sin has invaded God's good creation. And so we live in a world that's in rebellion against God. And in order to maintain loyalty to God, there will be times when you go against the flow. You go against the grain. Jesus didn't come and immediately take over the world. To use again C.S. Lewis's imagery, he dropped behind enemy lines. He came down into enemy territory. And now he has founded you as this resistance movement. But at times there will be, as all resistance movements face, opposition. So how will we maintain our loyalty? What will our ultimate priorities be? Of course, there's some pretty bold implications of Jesus saying this. What Jesus says of us determines our eternal destiny? Well, then this man must be more than a man. Either he's lying or he's out of his mind. But he comes with the authority of God. And just when you feel, you know, intimidated by this verse or, you know, the sense of, I can never do this, I'm weak, I'll fail. Hey, so did Peter. Peter, under pressure, denied the Lord and was restored. So So whatever these verses mean, There is hope for those who do that. I would think these verses would speak more towards the end product. That settled determination, I'm done with God. Versus any kind of temporary relapse like what we see for Peter. There is always hope, there is always grace. But Jesus seeks to equip us by telling us these truthful words. And so now let's come to the other section, the end of the chapter, where Jesus now assures us. He wants to assure us how this whole thing ends and that it comes to a good end in the will of God. We will see here this dual theme, once again, of warning and encouragement. On the one hand, verses 34 to 49, if you agree to follow Jesus, here's how one commentator put it. To agree to follow Jesus is to sign away all rights to a quiet life of self-determination. So that's the challenge. And on the other hand, we see in verses 40 to 42, the encouragement. Eternal good comes to those who maintain loyalty to Jesus. So let's just trace those dual themes out in the rest of the time we have tonight. Verse 34, Jesus says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and etc., as we see in these verses. So Jesus says, I haven't come to bring peace, uh, but a sword. Now you may say, wait a minute, Jesus, don't you know how the whole gospel story begins? I mean, Isaiah 9, you're the Prince of Peace. 
Isaiah 11, the wolf is going to lie down with the lamb. And Matthew is intent on showing us, you bring that story to a culmination. What do you mean you didn't come to bring peace on earth? Well, I think what Jesus is saying here is, once again, that already and that not yet. Or the right now and the future. So ultimately, when God's final triumph is here, well, peace is a part of that good life. Peace is what the Savior is bringing to his earth. It is the eventual result of his ultimate triumph. However, right now, dropping behind enemy lines, the kingdom of God has begun, but it's not yet taken over everything. There will be conflict. There will be those who are loyal to Jesus and those who are not. And here's what Jesus is saying. If you want to get to that peace, the ultimate peace that's coming... You won't get there by just avoiding conflict. And he means conflict that comes about because you are loyal to Jesus. And then he illustrates it there in verses 35 and 36. This is actually an Old Testament citation from Micah 7, 6. Even in the Old Testament, those who are loyal to God, conflict with those who are not. Jesus says, that may be what comes to you if you maintain loyalty to me. Now again, like I said last week with persecution, if this doesn't come to you in the providence of God, uh, the, the first conclusion shouldn't be, okay, I must be doing something wrong, let me go look for conflict. All right, Jesus does not make a virtue of conflict. He doesn't say that we should be the kind of people who are always involved in conflict. In fact, Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers, those who reconcile those who are in conflict. But what he is saying is, that is a potential result. If you have a home and the people have different priorities regarding Jesus, then there could be conflict. He'll speak to this in the next verse. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. I mean, what are the ultimate loves in the home? And God designed marriage in the home to be one of harmony where everybody rode together in the same direction in order to govern God's creation. But because of sin coming into the world, there are now conflicts when there are different ultimate priorities. Now again, by God's grace, ideally, father, mother, children would love the Lord. They would love one another. But that is not always what happens. And so thankfully, Jesus, as you may remember, it's coming in the future chapters. He does remind us, hey, who are my mother and brother and sisters? Those who do the will of my Father. If you lose your family for the sake of Jesus, you've got a new family. And a new family identity that endures for eternity. Now in verse 37, Jesus just gives a, a little more insight into what this means. Okay, what, what kind of conflict? Well, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Now this is the passage in Luke where he says anyone who doesn't hate their father or mother is not worthy of me. And of course, that language always catches us short. Wait, what? Well, he tells husbands, love your wives. And then what is this language of we need to hate one another? Uh, for Jesus' sake. Well, this is where the different Gospels are, are very helpful. Uh, they are recording Jesus' words. They are writing under inspiration, but under the inspiration of God. Sometimes they bring out different nuances of what Jesus is saying, and they mutually interpret one another. If Luke uses hate in order to emphasize choose Jesus, 
reject other ultimate priorities? Well, maybe Matthew's language is a little clearer, a little easier to understand. We're talking about ultimate love. Who gets the ultimate love in your heart and in your life? And, and I'll say this too. I, I don't like it when this is explained as if love was a pie and there's only so many slices of pie and just Jesus has to get more pie uh, than anybody else. I, I think that's a bad analogy. I think there's different kinds of love. And that is what Jesus is speaking at here. God, being the object that he is, deserves a certain kind of love. A certain kind of loyalty. He must be the only one who gets that ultimate loyalty and that love in which there is adoration or worship. If you are a child, you are to love your parents. If you are a parent, you are to love your children. And if you are married, you are to love your spouse. And again, it's not that, well, he gets this big piece, you get this leftover piece. No, he gets the ultimate loyalty love. Others get the love that is appropriate to them as fellow creatures, those who are, God willing, going with you in this journey of following Jesus. And so that's why Matthew uses this language. What kind of love does God get? He, he must get the love that is reserved for God. You can't give the kind of love you should give God to a creature. That's what I'm trying to say. God gets that love. Creatures get the love that is appropriate to them, and thus creation works the way it's supposed to. And by the way, just, just to cover all the bases, this does not justify failing to perform biblical, filial, home duties, so to speak. Uh, none of this being rude to the family, never present, because, hey, i got to love Jesus and serve him. Uh, in Matthew 15, Jesus excoriates the Pharisees. Why? Because you've got these little traditions where people can get out of helping their parents by giving this gold to the temple. And Jesus says, don't you dare nullify God's commands to honor your father and mother through those religious traditions. So it doesn't justify failing to perform our biblical home duties. But there is a love that is reserved for God alone. And no doubt when Jesus was saying these things and when he was Giving the requirements of the kingdom of God, people would say, you are out of your mind. And that's why he says they may think the same of you. So therefore, verse 38, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. First occurrence of the word cross in Matthew's gospel. And as the people in Matthew's day would understand this was on one level a horrible, painful death. Not only that, it was utter shame and disgrace as well. And then the Jewish mentality even said something about how God thought of you. If you were crucified, you must be under God's curse. So Jesus is saying, you just be prepared to take all that. If it doesn't become martyrdom for you, there may be a social stigma. And Jesus says, be ready to endure that. Jesus will go first. And while his disciples don't initially follow, remember they all fall away, he's saying be ready to walk that road. And then verse 39 provides the, the transition to the last verses in which there is encouragement. On the one hand, whoever finds their life will lose it. You, you gain spiritual life, might lose your physical life. If you lose your physical life for my sake, well, you will find spiritual life. 
So then he comes into the last verses and gives us these encouragements. Despite everything he said, all the potential hardships, there will still be friends along the way. Friends who offer assistance in this journey of faith. And they give it because they're in line with the kingdom of God. They support Jesus. They support his mission. And so they support you. Verse 40, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Again, you are out representing me, my authority. So how they respond to you basically tells you how they respond to me. And as Jesus says elsewhere, how they respond to me tells us how they respond to God. If they welcome a prophet as a prophet, that's what you'll be, my proclaimers. Well, then they'll receive a prophet's reward. And if they welcome a righteous person, they'll receive a righteous person's reward. In verse 42, and if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will not lose their reward. And here's what I want you to notice. I think this is what brings it home to our encouragement. On the one hand, you've got these 12 commissioned to go out and preach, to build the kingdom of God. And in our day, the authority Jesus gave them, handed down through the keys of the kingdom of heaven, is given to those who govern God's church. There's those whose job it is to support and further that mission in that capacity. But notice this, just because that isn't your calling, that's not your vocation, it doesn't mean you miss out. It doesn't mean you miss out on the opportunity to be involved. And it doesn't mean you miss out on the reward. Notice that again in verse 42. If, you give, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, he will not lose their reward. So you're going out, and if you're faithful, you'll be rewarded. But those who help you on the way, those who are also a part of this kingdom, who do whatever it is they can, they are rewarded as well. So it's not like, oh, disciples, ultra spiritual, you get the big rewards. Well, these people down here, they, they, someone's got to do those jobs and maybe they'll have a place in God's kingdom. No, we all have different jobs. And if we are loyal to Jesus, then we all receive the same reward. If the disciples go, they will be rewarded. And if they are helped on their way, then they will be rewarded. And when it comes to the job, if they go and proclaim, if that's what God's told you to do, don't shrink from it. But at the same time, God may give you a different job. Some kind of role that helps in God's creation work. Again, what was the original task given to Adam and Eve? You are to multiply, fill the earth, and exercise dominion. My image bearers will govern my earth. Now, sin came in and threw a big monkey wrench in that. But this is what Jesus is reversing, the curse on creation. So how can you help govern God's creation? How can you help his creation work well? By showing love to neighbor and by doing things that benefit people's lives. How can you help the kingdom advance? The spiritual message, the kingdom of God. What part can you play in the church working well? In the church advancing and in things working well for God's glory. If you do it, and you do it through loyalty to Jesus, you will be rewarded. And as you do it, the promise of this chapter is Jesus' authority goes with you. So go out and do that work this week and know God's blessing 
in your life. Let's pray and give thanks and ask for his help. Father in heaven, thank you for your authority. We, we pause here at the end of our worship to stand in awe of you and to adore and worship you because of your perfect authority and your true message. Put your words in our mouth. Fill us with your spirit that we may say what needs to be said. Show us how we can serve, whether young in school, working jobs, in retirement, whatever we can do in your creation, whatever we can do in the work of the church, the kingdom, and the new creation. Help us to know it. Help us to do it by your blessing. And would you be glorified. Forgive us of our sins. Give us your help. And we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.